everyone, Christine here to welcome you to our annual History for Halloween episode. It is our 10th year doing this, which means a full decade of drawing from the past to fill your ears with the strangest tales to mark what my Halloween-loving friends call spooky season. I'm going to start us off with a story that, well, if you've ever listened before, you know where this is going. It came from a historical newspaper. This is the, quote, story of a ghost and conjugal fidelity from the May 18th, 1820 edition of the Maryland Gazette. However, like many of the stories I've found in newspapers, I've also found it in other locations, printed both before and after it. For example, it appears in the Australian Literary Journal of January 1849. So this tale had legs. Anyway, as always, I give the credit to the place where I found it first. And this is the sort of story that I can imagine if I lived in that time, I would have been entertained by and shared with my friends. So since all of you listeners are friends of the pod, I am sharing it with you. The so-called story of a ghost and conjugal fidelity goes like this. In an unspecified time, a man named Samuel Fisher had an acquaintance who was a woman living in Cork who was of exquisite character and she was going through a hard time. She was widowed, and she missed her husband something fierce. Day and night, all she did was miss her husband. She sighed and lamented during the day, and cried on her pillow when the moon was up. It was a horrible time for the poor woman. One day, Samuel was visiting with his friend, and she was in a particularly bad way. She was, quote, in a state of mental agitation bordering on distraction. The cause? A ghost. More specifically, the ghost of her late husband. But this wasn't a happy reunion. This was of the most upsetting level. He appeared by her bedside at night and had a demand of her. He told her that she needed to go to the vault where his coffin was and have it opened. Samuel, like most people reading this probably would have done, told her that this was a ridiculous idea. He tried to convince her that the ghost was a figment of her imagination, that her grief was ruining her ability to think clearly, and all the other ways to dissuade her that he could think of, succeeding only in convincing her that maybe she should wait before doing something so drastic. No doubt, he hoped she would move on from this idea. She didn't. Because, she argued, her late husband wouldn't let her. For two more nights, since things in this type of story always happen in threes, Her husband's ghost terrorized her, again appearing by her bed and reiterating his demand with, quote, loud menaces. Open my coffin, woman. (laughs) At this point, Samuel felt he had no choice but to help her. He contacted the appropriate authorities and accompanied his grieving friend to the vault where her late husband's coffin was. The weeping widow watched her husband's coffin get opened, and once it was revealed, She stepped forward and kissed the corpse on the lips. Not a course I would have taken, but to each their own. Nothing else was reportedly done, and the coffin was once again closed. The following day, Samuel was looking to leave town, but wanted to check on his friend before he left. He rolled up to her house and was greeted not by his friend, 
but by her maid instead. He asked for his friend and was told she was sleeping, but he persisted in trying to see her. The maid smiled at him, turning down his offer of consolation for her mistress, and she dropped a truth bomb on him, saying, quote, It would be a pity to disturb the new married couple so early in the morning. Samuel was shocked. How could this woman be married? Just the day before, she had been weeping over her late husband and kissing his corpse and all sorts of things showing her love and devotion. He asked who on earth got married yesterday, and the maid assured him it was the same widowed friend he had intended to offer his support to. Seeing his state of disbelief, she revealed more, explaining, When the widow's late husband had been on his deathbed, he made his wife make him a promise. Deathbed wishes are very serious things, naturally, and this man's was no small deal. He made her promise that she would not marry again until after they once again met, presumably meaning that she would never remarry because they would next meet in heaven. Still, she continued to elaborate, it didn't take her own death to reunite the couple. After all, Samuel had witnessed the reunion himself just the day before, when he helped the widow have her husband's coffin opened so that she could meet him again and kiss his lips. While Samuel likely stood there in a stupor, aware of being played by the widow, who I guess now was a newlywed, the maid continued, quote, My mistress, sir, sends you her compliments and thanks, together with this bride's cake, to distribute among your friends. And there our story ends, with a befuddled Samuel, a tasty cake, and one very happy newlywed woman, who was ingenious in her method of fulfilling the promise she made to her first husband in order to tie the knot with her second one. This story certainly made me chuckle, and I hope it did the same for you. Happy Halloween. In the late 12th century, in Japan, a civil war was fought between the Haike, or Taira clan, and the Genji, or Minamoto clan. Its last battle was fought at Danoura, and that sea and shore, so the story goes, have been haunted ever since. On dark nights, thousands of ghostly fires hover about the beach or flit above the waves, and whenever the winds are up, a sound of shouting, like the clamor of battle, comes from the sea. The restless ghosts would wreck ships and drown swimmers, and to appease them, a Buddhist temple was built nearby. A cemetery also was made near the beach, and within it were set up monuments inscribed with the names of the drowned emperor and of his great vassals and Buddhist services were regularly performed there on behalf of the spirits. This put an end to the shipwrecks and drownings, but not entirely to the restlessness of the ghosts, as the following story makes clear. Some centuries ago, there lived a blind man named Hoichi, who was famed for his skill in recitation and playing upon the biwa, a stringed instrument. At the outset of his career, Hoichi was very poor. The priest of the Buddhist temple near the seashore was fond of poetry and music. Having heard Huichi play and recite, he invited him to live at the temple, receiving room and board in exchange for playing music for the priest when Huichi didn't have other plans. One night, the priest was called away to perform a Buddhist service, and he went there with his acolyte, leaving Huichi alone in the temple. Midnight passed and the priest did not appear, but Huichi remained on the veranda, practicing his biwa. At last, he heard steps approaching from the back gate. Somebody crossed the garden and halted in front of him, but it was not the priest. A deep voice called the blind man's name, unceremoniously, in the manner of a samurai summoning an inferior. Hoichi! Hai! 
answered Hoichi, frightened by the menace in the voice. I am blind. I cannot know who calls. There is nothing to fear, said the stranger more gently. I have been sent to you with a message. My present lord, a person of exceedingly high rank, is staying nearby with many noble attendants. He wished to view the scene of the Battle of Danoura, and having heard of your skill in reciting the story of the battle, he now desires to hear your performance. He will take your biwa and come with me at once to the house where the august assembly is waiting. So Huichi donned his sandals and took his biwa and went away with the stranger. The hand that guided him was iron, and the clank of the warrior's stride proved him fully armed, probably some palace guard on duty. Presently the samurai halted, and Hoichi became aware that they had arrived at a large gateway, and he wondered, for he could not remember any large gate in that part of the town. They passed on and crossed a garden, and the retainer cried in a loud voice, Within there, I have brought Hoichi. Then came sounds of feet hurrying, and screens sliding, and doors opening, and women speaking. Hoichi could not imagine to what place he had been conducted. A woman's hand guided him along polished planking and over widths of matted floor into the middle of some vast apartment. There he thought that many great people were assembled. Sound of the rustling of silk was like the sound of leaves in a forest. Hoichi was told to put himself at ease and he found a kneeling cushion ready for him. After he had tuned his instrument, he was asked to recite. So Hoichi lifted up his voice and chanted the chant of the fight on the bitter sea, making his biwa sound like the straining of oars and the rushing of ships, the whirr and the hissing of arrows, the shouting and trampling of men, the crashing of steel upon helmets, and the plunging of bodies in the flood. And to left and right of him, in the pauses of his playing, he could hear voices murmuring praise. Then fresh courage came to him, and he played and sang yet better than before, and a hush of wonder deepened around him. And when he reached the end with the tragic death of the emperor, all the listeners uttered one long, long, shuddering cry of anguish, and wept and wailed so loudly and so wildly that the blind man was frightened by the violence of the grief that he had made. For much time the sobbing and the wailing continued, but gradually the sounds of lamentation died away, and at last a woman's voice said, Although we had been assured that you were a very skillful player upon the biwa, we did not know that anyone could be so skillful as you have proved yourself tonight. Our lord intends to bestow upon you a fitting reward, but he desires that you shall perform before him once every night for the next six nights. Tomorrow night, therefore, you are to come here at the same hour. The retainer who tonight conducted you will be sent for you. But speak to no one of your visits here, because our lord is traveling incognito. It was almost dawn when Hoichi returned, but his absence from the temple had not been observed, as the priest, coming back at a very late hour, had supposed him asleep. In the middle of the following night, the samurai again came for him. Hoichi gave another recitation, with the same success that had attended his previous performance. But during this second visit, his absence from the temple was accidentally discovered, and after his return in the morning, he was summoned to the presence of the priest, who said, We have been very anxious about you, friend Hoichi. To go out blind and alone at so late an hour is dangerous. Why did you go without telling us? I could have ordered a servant to accompany you. And where have you been? Hoichi said that he had to attend to some private business, and could not arrange the matter at any other hour. The priest felt this to be unnatural and suspected something wrong, fearing blind lad had been bewitched. He did not ask any more questions, but told the servants at the temple to keep an eye on Hoichi. 
very next night, Hoichi was seen to leave the temple, and the temple servants lighted their lanterns and followed after him. But it was a rainy night and very dark, and before the temple folks could get to the roadway, Hoichi had disappeared. Evidently, he had walked very fast, a strange thing considering his blindness. The men hurried through the streets making inquiries, but nobody could give them any news. At last, as they were returning to the temple by way of the shore, they were startled by the sound of a biwa being played in the cemetery. There the men discovered Hoichi, sitting alone in the rain in front of the emperor's tomb, chanting the chant of the Battle of Danura, and around him, and everywhere above the tombs, the fires of the dead were burning like candles. So the moral of this story, dear listeners, is that sometimes even ghosts want to hear a good ghost story. Hello, footnoting history friends. It's Kristen, back again with some more spooky stuff for you. A little while ago, I mentioned Kate and Margaret Fox, aka the Fox Sisters, in my spirit photography episode. I didn't get to tell you much about them then, but Halloween seems like a good time to tell you a bit more of the story of their first contact with the spirit world. Alleged contact with the spirit world. Because there were some recantations of their claims, and then recantations of the recantations, and well, here we go. So Kate and Margaret were the younger daughters of the Fox family who lived in Hydesville, New York, which is in the Rochester area. They were young. I've read various versions of their ages, but Kate was about 11 and Margaret was about 14 when, in 1848, they claimed they heard soft tapping from the floor and walls of their bedroom. It took some convincing, but eventually their siblings and parents agreed that they heard something too. Only, they couldn't figure out where the noises were coming from. The taps got louder, the house started shaking, and there even seemed to be someone walking around in the pantry. So, creepy stuff. Their mom was pretty freaked out, and Kate and Margaret decided to try to talk to whatever spirit was obviously behind these disturbances. The two theories are they had to keep the prank going, or they get into some real trouble, or it was no prank. Kate and Margaret asked who the spirit was and what they were doing there, and they got some answers via more taps and knocks. I guess it was like a ghost Morse code or something. The spirit revealed that he was a he, a 31-year-old man who had five children, three sons, two daughters, and that he had been murdered in the house a year before. Oh, and he was buried in their cellar, 10 feet under. The sisters identified the phantom house knocker as Mr. Splitfoot, a traveling salesman who had been murdered with a butcher's knife. Soon, the neighbors were hearing about the ghostly goings-on at the Fox household because they were actively told, and the floodgates were opened, and people started coming to the house and witnessing Kate and Margaret talk to spirits. Mr. Splitfoot had to share the spotlight. People wanted to hear from their dead relatives, and the Fox sisters did not disappoint. Their older sister, a 30-something divorcee named Leah, made it her job to be the sister's agent and 
started booking them for public demonstrations. Their debut appearance was in 1849 at Corinthian Hall in Rochester, and about 400 people paid to see them do their thing. And that was just the start. They went to New York City, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and the Cleve, Cleveland, Ohio. They went all over. They were wildly successful, and many historians credit them with sparking off the American spiritualist movement, a diffuse belief system that held, among other things, that the living could communicate with the dead. A lot of 19th century people were eager to accept this as a possibility. A lot of people wanted to talk to their dead relatives, and the Fox sisters' success inspired other mediums to emerge, and things just kept getting bigger. I mean, not everyone bought what the Fox sisters were selling, so to speak. There were plenty of skeptics who did not believe in talking to ghosts, and Scientific American called the Foxes the, quote, the spiritualist knockers from Rochester, which I just love. The magazine would go on in later years to offer $5,000 to anyone who could sufficiently convince a panel of Harvard and MIT guys and Harry Houdini that psychics like the Foxes were legit and, well, let's just say no one got that money. And yes, Harry Houdini, the famed illusionist, was a huge skeptic of this stuff. He knew a thing or two about creating illusions, and he had a sort of side vocation of debunking mediums and psychics. As for Kate and Margaret, well, Kate went to England in 1871 and married an English barrister who was pretty into the spiritualist thing. And Kate had a steady seance business for a time. Eventually, Kate was widowed and left with two small children, and she had developed a drinking problem. As for Margaret, she met a man named Alicia Kane in 1852. He was a Navy man and an Arctic explorer, and he was actually pretty skeptical of Margaret, even though he was just utterly charmed by her. He kind of made it his mission to rehabilitate her. His plan sort of worked. She left the medium circuit, went to school, and married him in 1857. When he died, she converted to Catholicism, started drinking too, and by some counts dipped her toe back into spiritualism. In 1888, she gave an interview in the New York world where she confessed that she and Kate had made it all up. Those knocks? They were the sisters cracking their joints. Margaret demonstrated how she did it. This was right before a much-anticipated Fox sister appearance at the New York Academy of Music. Kate was in the audience. Historians speculate that perhaps they were both pissed at their older sister Leah, who was telling people that Kate was unfit to care for her children because of all of the drinking. People were floored. People cheered that they knew they were fakes all along and spiritualism was a bunch of crap. And people who had believed in them still continued to believe. A year later, Margaret recanted her confession. She said she made up that she had made it up. No one quite knows why. 
Maybe she really did just do it to get back at her older sister. Maybe it was the residual influence of her late husband. Maybe she missed the business and the fame. Could be a lot of things. Both sisters would die a few years later in New York City. Kate in 1892 and Margaret in 1893. The final twist to the story is that years later in 1904, when some kids were playing in the ruins of the Hydesville house, known locally and affectionately as, quote, the spook house, they found some bones in the cellar behind a crumbling wall. A doctor confirmed that the bones were about 50 years old, about as old as Mr. Splitfoot would have been when he started his ghostly knocking, or, you know, didn't. Later examinations of the bones determined that some were chicken bones, but there were a few other, quote, odds and ends, and, quote, a few ribs. So maybe someone was trying to make contact from the other side. Maybe Mr. Splitfoot had something to say, and the Fox sisters helped him say it. I do know one thing. It makes for a perfectly creepy story. Stay safe and stay spooky, footnoters. And happy Halloween. <laughs>